This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I'm so excited to welcome Buster Benson to the show. Buster is going to talk about how being able to productively disagree can be an asset in business and leadership. Buster, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Caroline. I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. I am really excited. I love your book. And, you know, the the title is just so resonant. <laughs> Why are we yelling? The art of productive disagreement. So it just makes me smile when I think about this because I think it applies in our personal and our professional lives. But let's get started because you're the expert and, and all of us out in the world are saying, okay, how can we productively disagree, how can this be an asset in business and leadership? Wow. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I really came to this book trying to solve that question for myself. So um, what I found really early on was that, you know, conversation is embedded in almost all of our interactions at work, in our personal lives, um, online as well. Um, And I realized that if you can make yourself have a slightly more productive conversation, um, learn slightly more productive habits about how to respond, how to think, how to reflect on things before you sort of derail a conversation in the wrong direction, then it can actually impact everything in your life. Um, And it definitely helps a lot of work because um, we always think about just doing our jobs and getting things done. But the way that we do that is by talking to people. So it's it's just everywhere in, in our lives. I agree. I mean, it's ubiquitous, right? It, it is everywhere. And, you know, it's interesting because I do a lot of leadership coaching and training and you hear uh, about the research and about the data that says cognitive diversity, diversity of thought is so important to build strong teams. Yet we also see a lot of rub in those disagreements. So what's the value in facilitating what you call more productive disagreements? Yeah, well, one of the biggest uh, advantages to learning the, to become more confident with, with disagreement in general is that you actually get to explore more possibilities, right? So if you're thinking about a question and you're having a, a conversation about any decision where you're choosing between options, um, a lot of times the pressure is to risk constrain those options early on and sort of simplify the question, simplify the options, and then choose oftentimes between two, right? Um, who knows if those are the two best options of the infinite list of, of things? So if you can uh, open up the possibilities in a conversation, allow uh, options that you might Come into the come to the table thinking are wrong, but then consider them. Um, you'll learn that you might actually find options that you wouldn't have normally considered that actually end up being better than the ones you came to the table thinking were right. Um, so ultimately, that means better decisions, better outcomes for everyone. And it sounds to me like you're you're also slowing us down to say let's come to the table with a plan, right? Let's take some time and not let emotions get out of control. So let's do a hypothetical because I'm sure people listening all over the world are saying, "Okay, great. I get that intellectually, but I absolutely disagree with my boss on this issue." So how do I how do I approach that conversation? Yeah, I mean it's there's a there's two parts to it really. Um the first one is to um, sort of pull back a little bit from trying to imagine what your boss already thinks, right? Um, and the other part is trying to pull back a little bit from what you already think, because both of those things can cause you to, and myself to, uh, 
sort of jump to a conclusion. And that's usually when, when the problem happens. So uh, it's really hard for us to tease apart when we're projecting our thoughts about who somebody is, what they think, and when they actually have a different point of view or a different perspective than we do think that, that they have. Um, so that's, that's oftentimes the first hard step is, okay, I know that I know. I know that I think I know what you think, but why don't I just verify that first? Um, because then you might actually learn there's a little bit more nuance. There's a little bit more openness, and that also signals to them that you're going to listen to them, which might then let them pull back a little bit from their agenda and consider your perspective as well. I love that. And I'm, I'm smiling because I often talk about this with my coaching clients. We all think we're great mind readers. And the truth is we just can't accurately do that. At least I've not found anyone that can, right? So asking for clarification. And I think also stepping back and being a better active mm-hmm. listener. What are your Absolutely. thoughts on that? Uh, we, we think of... Uh, our questions oftentimes in a way that is very leading, right? We oftentimes try to constrain the possibility of answers because we want them to say one thing. And not only that, but we think that we know which of their answers is correct and not correct. Um, when I think there's a chapter called, you know, asking questions that spark surprising answers, which is my way of sort of reopening that uh, topic with this idea that you can, you should try to find the question um, I don't know if you're familiar with 20 questions, but like when you, when you're doing the 20 questions and you're sort of trying to whittle down, you know, everything in the world down to one thing, you try to find questions that are perfectly in the middle of your knowledge and your sort of lack of knowledge, right? And so asking questions that you're pretty sure you will not know the answer to or not expect the answer to it, that's usually the line that I think works really well because once you're surprised by someone's response, uh, you can enjoy that, you know, and you've actually learned something and it's actually self-reinforcing in terms of asking the next question and the next question. Um, and you might end up in a completely different space than if you're just like, did you think this was a good idea or not? Um, those kinds of questions are really um, pigeonholing people and forcing them to somewhat uh, sort of answer in a way that may not be aligned with their real thoughts. Right. Right. So I'm also thinking, uh, and and they shall remain nameless, but I've got a particular colleague in my realm that's very competitive, right? And and this person loves to win the argument, right? It's all about the competition. So you talk about this in the book. G- give us a little more clarity. Why is trying to win an argument the wrong goal when you're in a conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a goal. And, and I think one of the things that we don't always consider is that it's not the, it doesn't have to be the only goal. There are a lot of other things. And we understand this when we're talking to our closest friends and our spouses and our fr- you know family. It was like, we don't need to be right all the time. What's actually better is to sometimes just build the connection with that person. Sometimes it's about learning something. Sometimes it's about actually just enjoying my time with that person. Um, and so if we only come to conversations playing this game of like, okay, I'm going to jam my opinion down and uh, sort of prove that I'm right, you're actually not going to learn anything as, as you're not as likely to learn something than if you come to it thinking like, how can I learn something about this person? How can I build my relationship with them? How can I enjoy the conversation? And sometimes by doing those things, you actually end up um, more aligned, which is ultimately the goal, you know, of being right. It's like, I want them to think what I think. But if you focus on the other fruit of converse, of disagreement, which is what I call them, um, you will oftentimes end up with that same goal of being aligned at the end of the conversation that you were really after. Um, it just might be at a different point in the sort of landscape of possible alignments um, than you had thought going in. 
So let's riff on alignment a little bit. I really, I love that term. Um, is, is there a building of trust and authenticity when you come to a place and say, wow, I, I learned something, or maybe I was wrong, or I'd like to explore your idea further, right? To, to really just give and take and say, you taught me something new. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's it, it's so enjoyable to actually learn something from a conversation. I know that a lot of us have our calendars packed with, you know, 25-minute meetings all through the day. Um, what if you could actually enjoy each of those 25-minute uh, conversations uh, with groups, with individuals, and, you know, you sort of feel more refreshed and more um, sort of interested in people, more connected with people by the end of the day versus, you know, if you just come in with, here's my agenda, here's my action items, okay, next meeting, um, you're actually just starving yourself of all these potentially rich interactions. Um, so I really think that it's, once you sort of get into the, the this new uh, rhythm of um, trying to enjoy the conversations with people, um, it's sort of self-fulfilling, yeah. Absolutely. So Buster, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. Your Working Life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. So I love this part of the book, and I'd love for you to explain it to our global audience, Buster. What is a productive conflict versus unproductive conflict? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is really just how you feel about the con- the conflict. Um, so if you come away feeling frustrated, like you feel that you actually uh, didn't get to say what you wanted to say, that you didn't get the outcome that you wanted, that you just like you you're feel you feel tense, you feel you're going to start replaying the conversation in your head and then think of better things to say next time, um, or you're trying to think of a way to um, correct the outcome later on. All that stuff is really tense and frustrating. And it, that's sort of what leads to us to really un, like, not like disagreement and ultimately try to avoid them in the future. Um, on the other hand, you know, if, if you come away from conversation or conflict um, sort of with an aha moment or sort of like a, a spark of, of new realization about, you know, something that you didn't quite get, um, uh, then that's productive. And uh, coming back to like the fruit of disagreement, I sort of I think of them as four things. One of them is this alignment, sort of being on the same page with someone. That's definitely the the most common one that people strive for. But there's also insight about um, something new. Like there's there's a question you find you get a little bit closer to the answer. There's the human connection, the relationship between people, the interpersonal sort of trust and uh, goodwill for other people. And then the fourth one is enjoyment, which I, I really think is one of the most important ones, um, where you can come away just you know having a little bit more energy at the end of the day, um, at the end of the conversation than you did going in. I love that. I love that. So I want to dive a little deeper into your background. You are uh, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, have had two decades of experience facilitating these difficult conversations, right, with probably some iconic and controversial tech 
uh, professionals in the world. But then you went out and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to stage a series of experiments with strangers and debate emotional topics. And I just find that so compelling and fascinating. So give us a little scoop there, because, you know, the result is this incredible book, but but also your belief that there's an art of disagreement. So we're going to dive into that. But just tell us, how did you get all this great, juicy information? Yeah, um, you know, it wasn't as big of a jump as it, as it sort of sounds like, because my job has always been to facilitate hard conversations, you know, oftentimes between engineers and designers and marketing and analytics and leadership. Um, and so the the methodology that sort of evolved over those 20 years has been to oftentimes facilitate these conversations, sort of step back from my agenda, help the the best answer sort of float to the top. Um, oftentimes not, hopefully it's not from my brain, it's from sort of this, you know, collective shared brain. Um, and so that's, that's what led me to it. But there was a catalyst. You know, I think um, this desire to solve the most important problems has always been at the heart of a lot of tech startups in, in Silicon Valley um, and in Seattle, where I was for a long time. And, and uh, like, once you let go of the answer, you know, sometimes the answer is technology. But I think I have uh, discovered that there are so many more other, other venues and, and avenues for for answers to come from, and conversation and uh, sort of just relationships has become a more ripe um, venue for solving problems. And I think that once this starts translating to uh, my friendships and my family and, and um, all that stuff, it became clear that, you know, you know, tech might be an answer for some portion of this, but it's definitely not the only place to be looking for this. Um, and so that's what, so that's what sort of led me down this path. And you know what I love? These illustrations in the book, I mean, they're they're funny, right? They they make me chuckle. They really do. They're witty, they're they're smart. Was was that an idea from the beginning? Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I really want I, I'm I'm an avid reader of books. I read a lot of them, and I'm oftentimes in a bookstore flipping through, and whenever there's an illustration, I'm like, oh, I could sort of understand what's going on here. And so when I was writing this, I wanted I was really thinking about that experience of like, how do I how do I make this more approachable? How do I make it less intimidating? Because when you talk about uh, arguments and disagreements, most people are like, whoa, 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 I, I, I don't like to argue. This is not you know, my thing. I prefer just to like keep my head down and, and do my thing because no, I'm never going to convince anyone. So I spent a lot of time thinking about um, how do I make this a little bit lighter, a little bit more um, approachable. Um, and so I did have to you know, learn how to draw in a lot of senses. I, I did, this, did all these illustrations myself and um, it was really fun to just um, explore uh, ideas in a visual way rather than just through words. Well, I love them. So thank you for that. I agree. As an avid reader, it's always fun just to have that visual stimulation in a, in a different way. So something that struck me in the book, you talk about the art of disagreement, and you really liken it to a meta skill, the same level of, as writing well or thinking critically. And I, I've worked with many lawyers over the years, and certainly they are trained in the art of debate and dis. Uh, persuasive conversation, but that's not necessarily something that everybody dives into. But I think I'm hearing you say, this is a valuable skill. So let's learn how to disagree. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and not only that, but we often think of it as a different skill than what I would claim as the real valuable one. Um, when we think about debate and negotiation and sales and all these things that, you know, oftentimes it's about persuasion um, and getting your way. Uh, so I think that some of that is helpful in certain, especially in certain jobs. Um, but there is this whole other branch of the field, I would say, where it's 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 a little bit more loose. And we never took a class in um, productive disagreement. And to that 
you know, that fact sort of led me to realize that, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in our conversational habits and how we just talk and the words we use and how we respond um, that isn't as intimidating as like learning um, nonviolent communication, you know, from beginning to end or learning negotiation or rationality that um, just you know, doing a few other things, asking better questions, building arguments together, sort of learning how to um, speak to your own internal voices and learning how to um, notice when you're sort of sparked with anxiety. Um, all these things um, are really easy to do, um, but we just don't have a venue to teach people about it or learn about it. Um, and so we're all sort of like on our own learning curve. <laughs> exactly. And, and what I'm hearing you say is we can develop this, right? It takes practice and some patience and some active listening. And, and certainly your book is a great, uh, great resource. So Buster, I was fascinated by uh, learning more about these social experiments that you did. And you synthesized over 175 cognitive biases. And you talk about cognitive bias in the book and how we can use it as a tool to have better arguments. So first help the audience understand what is a cognitive bias and what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very academic term that a lot of people may have heard before, but don't quite understand. I, I would say, and that's where I was, right? And that's why I decided to synthesize it all into something that was easier to understand for myself. And it was ultimately the genesis for this book. Um, I wrote about them, and I was thinking about like, no, what? You know, we oftentimes think of cognitive biases as sort of problems in our brain that cause us to systemically, you know, choose the wrong thing or choose something that is maybe in our own self-interest, but actually isn't in our long-term best interests. Um, and there are these parts of our brains that have evolved over a long time period of time that were oftentimes invisible or subconscious. And now we're starting to understand sort of how many of them there are and why they exist and all this stuff. And I was drawn to it because, um, you know, we all understand that we just sometimes lean in the wrong direction. But we, what, what, I did, what I didn't really get was why do we have them in the first place? Like clearly they must be doing some kind of useful job to, you know, sort of have evolved in our conversational landscape um, over time. So that's what I was interested in. And I found that there were four different sort of causes, like jobs that they do um, that are really useful and not only useful, but um indispensable we can't we can't avoid doing these jobs in our brains um and so for example one of them is like the fact that there's just too much information in the universe for us to ever process everything obviously and so we have to filter and so how do we filter in a way that doesn't you know exhaust us in the first five minutes of the day we have to come up with really easy simple uh, lightweight ways to filter information um that and we have a few um, but they have problems they have side effects i guess um and those are the biases Got it. Thank you. Great explanation because that can be tricky if, if it's not if it's new uh, to any of the listeners. But but here's something that I learned from reading your book, and I'd love for you to reveal this to our audience. What is an honest bias, and how can we develop that? That was new yes. to me. Yes. Um, so this was this is definitely you know my take on it. Um, whenever I talk about bias, you know the first thing that I hear back is oftentimes like, okay, well, how can I use this knowledge to convince people that they're wrong? <laughs> um, you know, and and that's that's definitely um, a natural response, but um, and the second, and then the second response is, well, how do I stop this? How do I stop being biased? How do I fix it once and for all? And I think this is a very um, natural response as well. We want to just get rid of them. We want to fix the bug that's in our brain and sort of update, get the software update, and you know, move on. But what I sort of would like to emphasize is, 
emphasize, I guess, is that we can't we can't totally fix this stuff. This is just stuff that is required for us to think at all. We have to we have to constrain our our possibilities as we think and jump to conclusions and come up with stories about things, make decisions um, with constraints because we're all sort of constrained um, in our in, the, in our lives. Um, so what what I sort of see as the difference, the way to, to shift your thinking on this is to instead think about instead of thinking about fixing bias in yourself or in other people, think about how you can. Uh, Notice it when it happens, and notice especially the damage that it might cause in your in the past and in the present. Um, so, if you are if you can't eradicate bias from your brain, at least you can do, take steps to repair the damage that it might be causing. And that's a much more practical approach to take. So, if you have a hiring process, for example, or an interview process, you can take steps to reduce the damage that it would cause, which might mean like you know not being totally open at the top of the funnel for your flow, or you know preferring a certain kind of person over another, um, you can start to think about those as the things to, to repair. Um, and you, you don't have to actually um, rewire your brain to do this. You can just you know, take steps within the organization or within the, the process to, to improve things immediately. I like it. Buster Benson, I've learned a lot from you today and I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. And I'm delighted that we had a chance to talk about healthy discourse. Thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. I I loved uh, all the questions you had. Awesome. Well, let me tell our global audience about your book. Again, the title is Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. And of course, it's available on Amazon and at major book retailers. So I hope you check it out. And if you like our show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review. And let me tell you why. This helps new people find us online. And let us know what career-minded issues you want to hear on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special shout out to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for the extraordinary work you do to make this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.